the start of the week and plenty from your day's radio. This is Playback Daily. I'm Carol Moran and here's what you might have missed. You had this extraordinary shield. Yes. Probably an enormously strong one Mm. and very necessary one to keep you sane and to keep you a a Mm -hmm. good, you know, partner and mother and what have you. Yeah. And friend. Um, But the shield was beginning to... It's crumbling. It was crumbling. At this moment, I don't think I'd like the... The responsibility of taking a kidney from my one of my kids, unless I was really desperate, you know. He was one of the one of the people who, for 24 hours, dug through rubble and and used his own truck to sort of gather debris and and, and take it away from the site. And himself and a few a few of his um, few of his companions have got together and organised an event called Trucking for Creaseless. And we'll start with the Ray Darcy show. And what's your favourite colour noise? Uh, on TikTok, they're talking about sleep and they're talking about uh, what you play on your little speaker if you want to sleep better. I always thought it was white noise, but brown noise seemingly is the top noise to sleep to now on TikTok. Um, I w- you wouldn't know the difference. White noise sounds like this. See? Whereas brown noise sounds like this. Seemingly, that's working for people. Brown noise. And then there's green noise. And then there's purple noise. And then there's pink noise. And then there's blue noise. I I, I don't know. I, I, I suppose whatever works for you. And then if you put them all together... You know, that melting pot of noises. Here we go. It sounds like there's a storm brewing outside, doesn't it? And maybe that's why it works. Because if you're in bed at night all tucked up and cosy and there's a storm, a gale force wind outside with rain battering against the window, you probably sleep a little bit better. That sounds like you're out at sea in a boat. Um, anyway, they're all the noises and green noise and brown noise are very popular on TikTok at the moment. Oh, from the Ray Darcy show. And in the morning on the Ryan Tuberty show, former state pathologist Marie Cassidy is the second celebrity to be voted off Dancing with the Stars. And she popped into studio with her professional partner, Stephen Vincent. Dancing with the Stars on RTE Radio 1. <laughs> Sponsored by Muller Corner. Mullerlicious. And here they are. Right, welcome to our guests this morning, Marie Cassidy and Stephen Vincent. And uh, congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. I this, think we did well. This is a moment of, of <laughs> celebration, not commiseration, isn't it? How are you this morning, Mary? Um, I'm great this morning, actually. Ribs are still sore, but yeah, fine, fine. And Stephen? I'm doing well. I'm you're, doing very good. Very okay. Good. Uh, were you surprised that uh, last night happened, that you, you were, you know, uh, um, p- politely asked to... <laughs> that you were kicked out of the show last night? <laughs> oh, oh, I was distraught. <laughs> It's the name of the game, for goodness yeah, sakes. Yeah. We signed up, we knew that somebody was going every week. Can you always hope it's not going to be you? But yeah, <laughs> you know. let's get down to business. I, you were the last person, I think, in 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 of all the candidates that I thought would be on this program. I don't know why. I don't know why. I've only met you, I think, once before on the Late Late Show, and when we were talking about your career and life and so forth, I thought you were a delightful company and fascinating person. 
but I didn't see the dancer in you. Um, wh- where did it come from? The, the the desire to be on this show? I just did, it just came left of centre for me. So talk to me about the decision. Uh, well, it came left of centre to me as well. Though. <laughs> that was a great idea. Well, I mean, I I hadn't thought about it. I mean, it was far, far from really? my mind. And then just suddenly RTE approached me and I said, oh, I don't know. And it was the family said to me, go for it, Mum. Yeah. And I said, well, OK. <laughs> but it, it 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 was even the approach to you was clever and uh, unexpected. I mean, what did they say to you about why they chose you? Um, they didn't explain anything. They just said, "Do you fancy it?" Yeah. And I went. Oh. And had you been a viewer of this show or Strictly Come Dancing or anything like that? Were you? Oh, yeah. oh no, I love these kind of shows. Do you? Oh, oh God, yes. I mean, like everybody else at home, you know, I'm a, an armchair critic. Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So you're shouting at the TV. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, as a former state pathologist, I presume pro- programs like these are essential for your brain, actually. Well, that's it. You I need mean, all that glitter to distract <laughs> from all those body bags. Exactly. As obviously I like to fill my head with nonsense <laughs> at the end of the day. Clears out what I've, what I've actually been dealing with. Yeah. Tell me about it. You became a figure of, of great interest in this country since you became, when you were the state pathologist. Was that unusual for you, that sort of anti-celebrity, if you like? Yeah, I mean, that was really bizarre because I had been doing the same job over in Glasgow for many, many years and nobody knew who we were. You know, we just sort of kind of sneak in in the middle of the night and sneak back out and we would appear in court and our names would be in the paper, but not to the extent when I came to Ireland, I just thought this was very, very odd. But you have to put that aside and just ignore it. I appreciate that. Well, what, to what do you attribute the interest uh, and the, you know, as I say, newfound celebrity? It's bizarre. I think it's the Irish have a fascination with death. I mean, before my predecessor, Jack Harbison, I mean, he, when I, I mean, I'd known Jack since I came into forensics, so I've known him since the 80s, 1980s, where I, I am ancient. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, and he used to say, everybody in Ireland knows me, and we would go, I'm sure they do, Jack. Yeah. And we'd humour him. And then when I came over and I thought, everybody in Ireland does know who he is. Yeah. And I just found that interesting, shall we say. So it's kind of a macabre sort of interest in death and... Yeah. Crime and it's mm. huge, huge interest in this country. You're quite yeah. right. I mean, it really is quite remarkable when you think about it because, as I say, coming from the Scottish situation where, you know, we, d- we don't really talk about death too much, you know, yeah. and certainly not murders because you don't want people to get that impression of Scotland. So, you know, the murder would be in page seven in a corner so yeah. in, the, in the newspaper, but here, front page. Yes. And with as many photographs as they can possibly have. As humanly have. possible. <laughs> Do you miss the job? Do you know something? No. Frankly, no. No, no. I'd come to the end of that. Um, there's, there's, it's, it's one of those jobs that you know when you have to go. And I knew I had to go. And can I ask you what point? Where, where does that point come? I think it... Sometimes I think people just think, oh, this is just too hard or it's too difficult. But sometimes I've always prided myself that I'm unbiased and I'm independent and I don't... I'm only concerned about the, the, the person who's died and their, their family getting answers. Mm. When you start to tip into who did it and why they did it, when that starts to come into your psyche, you start to go, oh, no. And in the, one of the last cases, 
I had, I was beginning to think that and I thought, no, this is the time to Isn't go. that fascinating? It, it was creeping into, you had this extraordinary shield. Yes. Probably an enormously strong one mm. and very necessary one to yeah. keep you sane and to keep you a, a mm-hmm. good, you know, partner and mother yeah. and what have you. Yeah. And friend. Um, but the shield was beginning to... It's crumbling. Was crumbling. And as for those headlines after her exit from Dancing with the Stars. Have you seen the he- the headlines in the papers yet this morning? Uh, some of them are great. Uh, so because you the uh, uh, marry not for for us, uh, Cruella end for Cassidy. Uh, Mary's cruel oh. blow. Uh, no inquest needed. <laughs> oh. <laughs> That's my favourite. It's well done to the tabloids. Uh, uh, top doctor, foxtrots off TV show. Um, <laughs> you know, the, the way you guys are, enjoyed it as much as we did watching it, um, it that, I think that's what the essence of this programme is, is laughter and yeah. joy uh, in a world exactly. gone quite mad and angry and unhappy mm. we just need that shot I keep saying it every week here the shot in the arm mm. isn't that it exactly. it's, it's lovely exactly. distraction from the darkness yes Sunday night enjoy yourself You're, you you um, took up ballet recently is that right um, well that was when I was in Ireland yeah. uh, when I was working but I mean <laughs> how many years ago was that <laughs> now when you say took up ballet yeah. <laughs> on a Thursday night I did an hour <laughs> No, but that's okay. I mean, let's not let's not belittle your endeavours here. You, but you did decide I'll I'll do ballet for uh, what? How long did you do? A year, two years, or? I was about three years. Or did something. you for, on a Thursday night for yeah, an hour? Yeah, when did, I could, when it wasn't in Galway or Letterkenny or, or whatever it was. Wherever the crime was going on. I hate gyms, yeah. and I thought, oh. I need to do something. And that was the... And I just saw that in the supermarket. Did you? You saw <laughs> the supermarket on a little yeah. thing saying ballet yeah. classes. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, yeah, that, that'll do for and me. And tell me, what did the ballet do for you as a matter of interest at that hour? Was it about escape again or...? Again, yes. Uh, I mean, and again, a bit like uh, Dancing with the Stars experience, some people took it very, very seriously. <laughs> and some people were just there because it was an hour out the house and you could enjoy yourself. Yeah. <laughs> without kids and everything else that goes on in life. So, um, and I was one of the, the latter. Okay. And are you still living in Ireland or have you moved back to the UK? We're over in the UK at the moment. Yes. Um, we decided, I decided to relocate to let the dust settle and let my. You know, whoever was coming in behind me, get a chance to make their their mark and in, in, the, in the office. Okay. Because it is quite difficult. Because for years I used to get, but Jack Harbison does yeah. this and Jack used to do that and he does it this way and I used to say, well, he's not here. It's yeah. me. <laughs> yeah. I leave it. And I thought that's not fair. So I thought if we disappear off, then leave it. Leave the you know the the office to whoever Let comes them off. in you. And then we'll say we'll decide in the future where we want to be. Okay, between you, you might come back here. You yep. might you might go over there because yep. your parents were, were were from Donegal, isn't that right? That's right. And, grandparents and yep. grandparents, excuse me, mm-hmm. sorry. And they went to Scotland. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's really where your is Scotland home in in the sense yeah. that yeah that's where you would consider. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I would consider myself a Scottish, but with a, an Irish flavour. With an Irish heart. <laughs> and Ryan asked Murray about her fellow contestants. Will we have a quick run through the, the uh, dances last night? Of the, because you are now free to be judgmental and cruel. <laughs> uh, Cruella. To, to, uh, to the other. Uh, the first, uh, the first uh, we saw Brooke and Robert doing um, what I thought was a really, really good dance they, from oh, The Greatest yeah. Showman, uh, The Greatest Show. Uh, great dance, great Oh, song. she's my girl. She's brilliant. Do you think she's... Oh, she's she, a real deal. For the win? Uh, she'd, she'd be, uh, that's what I would, I would be going for. 
They I'll be voting. Eight, eight, you will be voting <laughs> at home with a glass of something yeah, nice. Exactly. <laughs> you know, yeah, exactly. That's great. Uh, but that was a, that was a great. Oh, and then I think I, I do you know that expression pa where you, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I pad when I saw Shane Byrne with the big fists oh. coming out. Uh, for Wreck-It Ralph that was the hair was unbelievable <laughs> it's very entertaining I mean hair and makeup on the show are absolutely fabulous oh really I thought last oh, night they did them they really did yeah. and the costumes were just really really tremendous. excellent uh, they did got a, they got the devil's number there 666 so good luck with that um, <laughs> Stephanie Roach and Arvinas did uh, Rhythm of the Night from uh, Moulin Rouge again the costumes were knockout for she that she was gorgeous yeah. looked great she, she was gorgeous uh, 566 there Kevin and Laura of course one of my favourites Pure Imagination from Willy Wonka um, <laughs> and again it was a pretty really nice. brilliant really yeah. good number yeah really good yeah. number are you allowed to say anything about these dances are you worried that you're going to offend someone? no no not at all <laughs> okay, um, no I thought they were mind. all great no I thought they were all great <laughs> everyone's great I really did yeah. so you don't have to look at one of them go, that it was a, no, but, no but it was a really good show if you look at all the numbers yeah. I thought it was a really yeah. really no, good show yeah, last night yeah, thoroughly yeah. enjoyed it I mean uh, we're not delusional yeah most of us know that we're not dancers but everybody gives like you know puts on a show yeah for sure I mean, you, you, I mean you can't fault them for you know trying yeah I mean I'm looking at it going I'd yeah. never be able to do that I <laughs> never say never no, no. never say never I'm, I'm totally going to say never <laughs> I'll be sticking to my guns yeah. uh, Panty uh, Bliss and Dennis uh, did uh, The Witches Hocus from Hocus, Hocus. Hocus. That, was, that was fun wasn't that, that was great really yeah. that was really good that was a lot of yeah. fun 778 for them Suzanne Jackson and Michael uh, West Side Story and a nice return for Suzanne yeah. after yeah. That, yeah. that horrible experience yeah, she had last the week yeah. before yeah. Uh, the Paso Doble from that and uh, that got 878 so mm, nicely recognised there Carl and Emily did if I didn't have you from Monsters Inc., which was again, was he just makes me smile. Yeah, that's a great uh, gift to have, actually, yeah, to yeah, make definitely. you smile. It does. Um, I thought Arthur's comment to him was, <laughs> "I'm fucking <laughs> entertainer for my kid's first birthday." You know, it did have that that feel to it, which is good fun. Uh, Paul and Salo- Salome uh, did uh, the Charleston from. <laughs> Hercules. I mean, that, that was just so unexpected. That really unexpected. was unexpected. Well, it's it's a glorious combination of bonkers and and brilliance. Like they they, they can dance together. I, I mean, she must have some trust in him. The way he threw oh, around it, it was. I mean, we, we were we, all stunned. Yeah, we didn't see those um, lifts until I think the show. Like, yeah. I didn't see yeah. them until the show. So he said he had only sure, yeah. got it right once. Wow! In all the training. It was and like he was, was. For those who didn't see it, if you can imagine a cheerleader with a baton, <laughs> yeah, a human baton. But you know what I mean? That's what That's it was like. Just, <laughs> 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 spinning around. <laughs> so actually, that'd be great, St. Patrick's Day for Oh, there you go, Salome, <laughs> as a human yeah, baton, yeah. <laughs> and with the great Brogans uh, leading the way in Dublin. Like that makes sense. Oh gosh. Oh. Do you know, you've sold it to us oh, anyway. Hey, listen to the people of the parade. You're welcome. Yeah. Uh, uh, anyway, that was great. And they scored well for that 999. They really did. They did. Like three negative yeah. Germans. But that's a great yeah. result. And uh, <laughs> then finally, yeah, that was terrible. Uh, Damien and, <laughs> and Kylie did. Well, I mean, it was a souped up burning love. They obviously picked up the pace of it. Um, mm. But that's fine. Uh, that's just me being Elvisy. But it's not a criticism. It's <laughs> yeah. great, great piece yeah. of music, right? That's uh, great. And they did uh, uh, eight. Eight, nine. So you're beginning to see, aren't you? The there's there's always yeah. the same way. There's a parallel sort of vibe with the, with this. There's the the people who survive because they're fun, and mm-hmm. there's people who survive because they're excellent. Yeah. And then the ones in the middle start to get yeah. uh, left yeah. behind a little bit along yeah. the way. Isn't yeah. that it? Yeah. yeah. So you get it, and it's about a ratio of about four to two. 
Uh, You've goes, really thought about this. <laughs> I've been doing this for five yeah. years. Every Monday morning, <laughs> talking to you guys. I'm the guy with the PhD. <laughs> You're the guy with the moves. I'll come to you next time I want advice. This is great. <laughs> Mary Cassidy and Stephen Vincent from The Ryan Tuberty Show. And on today with Claire Byrne, an attack on a migrant camp in Dublin. Now, first this morning, many of you will have seen over the weekend and heard this morning about those scenes in Ashtown in North Dublin on Saturday afternoon, where a migrant camp of about 15 tents was attacked by men carrying sticks, a baseball bat and accompanied by several dogs. Kitty Holland from the Irish Times reported how this group of men shouted, get out and pack up and get out now at those staying in that camp. Well, I'm joined in the studio by Minister of State with Responsibility for Integration, Joe O'Brien, who's also Green Party TD for Dublin Fingal. You're very welcome, Minister. Thank you for being here. Kitty Holland's description of what happened on Saturday afternoon was frightening by any standards. What's your reaction to what happened? I heard the report. Uh, I read the article. I was I was shocked. I was disgusted. Um, it's clearly a, a criminal matter now, and, and I hope the Gardaí can glean adequate intelligence um, from what was witnessed by, by Kitty and her colleague uh, to pursue the matter further. Um, it's very worrying. Um, I've worked in the area of migrant rights for 20 years plus. Uh, I've never been more worried about the safety and security of, of migrants in the country than I am now. And um, I'm going to push, and we're all working in government at the moment, I suppose, to ensure that uh, people who come here, who look for refuge, who look for protection, uh, at the very least, are provided with some kind of safety, some kind of security, some kind of shelter. I would say at the outset as well that from the description of uh, the people who were at the camp um, by Kitty Holland, it would appear there are people who've been here for a while, some EU citizens as well. Working. Uh, some of them working as well. Some, I suspect, who have engaged with mainstream homeless services in different ways, uh, some who may have different levels of entitlement, so on and so forth. Are you saying that to create to, 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 to let us know that there is a distinction between the housing crisis and the integration and asylum and refugee crisis? Yes, there is, and and from the profile of the people who were there this morning, I th- I think it's 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 not the crisis that we were uh, dealing with last week and and this week in my department in terms of c- people coming here looking for international protection. Um, it's a longer standing issue, I think, as well that I've worked in myself as well in terms of um, people resident here uh, with entitlement here um, who may not engage with homeless services uh, in the way that most people do as well. But those people and others, and we heard this morning from Ruth Coppinger that this is not an isolated encampment, that there are others. Those people are in danger. Should the state now actively seek out people who are living in tents in places like Ashtown and try and find somewhere safe for them to stay? Well, to my knowledge, there are outreach teams who are aware of them and who do check in with them and do check in on their welfare. Like I've worked in homeless services myself. There are a minority of people who who, who don't engage, who don't want to engage in, in mainstream homeless accommodation. Um, 
I really, I'm, I'm a little bit reluctant to talk too much about these men because I really don't know their situations and their cases. But we, we, we do know that there have been people who have been forced to sleep either on the street yes. or out at Dublin Airport who have come here looking for asylum. Yes. So this is a problem that you're likely to face. Maybe these people are not in an asylum-seeking uh, situation, but you said you're very worried about migrants coming to Ireland seeking safety. And we're saying to them, we have no accommodation for you. Now, is that, is that a safe thing to do? I suppose we have to be honest with people. We're not saying we have no accommodation for people. At the moment, we're going through a spell whereby those people seeking uh, international protection here, at the moment, we can't guarantee them accommodation. We've been able to accommodate uh, most families uh, and most people with particular vulnerabilities over the last week. We're going through a particular spell over these next few weeks uh, where it is going to be extremely tight and we just can't give that guarantee at the moment. Uh, I would say... This is a very unusual situation that we're in. I know we've been in the, in the war situation now for a while. We have accommodated uh, in the region of 70,000 people over the last year as well. It is a war situation. You heard in the news bulletin there, there's more people who have been killed in the Ukraine. There are people fleeing for their lives from the Ukraine. But people fleeing other countries as well, where there are oppressive regimes, where there are wars, where human rights standards that are very, very... Um, unacceptable are enshrined in law and these people are coming to our country as well uh, looking for protection. So I would, I suppose I would, I, I would ask all those who my department is negotiating with, be they private entities or other state entities, other state bodies as well, uh, to help us out during this particularly difficult crisis time over the next couple of weeks. Minister Joe O'Brien there from today with Claire Byrne. And going back to Morning Ireland, here's Mary Wilson. More than 200 people attended a protest in Lismore against the opening of a direct provision centre for up to 117 asylum seekers in a hotel premises. The protest took place in the County Waterford town ahead of the scheduled arrival in the coming days of 69 people who are seeking international protection in Ireland, with more expected in the coming months. A group of families and single females are due to be accommodated in the Lismore House Hotel, which was the main tourist accommodation provider in Lismore until it closed in 2016. Speaking to Damien Tiernan on WLR, Lismore resident Brian Buckley said there's discontent in the town with how the situation has been handled. Someone needs to come down and address the people a public meeting and, and they need to come out and, 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 and all I want to know, all I want to know from, 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 uh, from these people is what are the economical and social benefits of having a direct, direct provision centre in the middle of Lismore? Because mm. from where I'm standing, Damien, and there's enough reports out there, there are enough organisations, uh, human rights organisations, who have come out and said direct provision centres don't work. And that's Brian Buckley. Connor Kane, our South East correspondent, spoke to some other local residents, starting with Breda Ducey, who outlined why she was attending the protest yesterday. I am here in order to try and keep our town the town that we have moved to um, to try and keep it as a heritage town and to bring all the tourists in and just to keep it going, keep it thriving. I think the main issue is the direct provisional centre, not the people, it's the centre itself, it's in the heart of the town, it's take away from all businesses, the economic growth and just it's, as I said, it's right in the centre of the town. I think the government can give, a bit, can give a bit more information and just a bit more clarity. There's no answers, the people don't know anything so everyone's just assuming. It's nothing to do with asylum seekers. It's We need the hotel for our own town. We need it for accommodation. We have absolutely nothing. We have festivals. There's nowhere. I have a party coming up now on the 11th of March uh, looking for accommodation for 
15 couples can't get them so they can't come and that's the biggest objection there's it's nothing to do we're very welcome in here we always do i work in the classroom bar in the town and everybody is so friendly clientele is fantastic i never had a problem with friends since i came here and i was a blow-in and people are so nice they should change their mind and move it into a bigger town or a bigger city or get derelict houses that are in the town, do them up and put the families in there. And we'd have no objection to that. Some local residents there in Lismore talking to our correspondent, Connor Kane. For more on the story, I'm joined now by John Pratt, who's a Labour Party councillor in the Lismore, Dungarvan area. And John Pratt, good morning. Good morning, Mary. Were you aware of plans to accommodate asylum seekers in this hotel, which has been closed since 2016? No, Mary, I suppose the first uh, information that we would have gotten was on last um, Tuesday week, would have been now, right, we got a call from um, Superintendent Mike Lacey, who wanted to organise a meeting with the three local councillors. I suppose what came from that was um, I contacted the other two. That meeting was arranged for the Thursday and he wouldn't tell me at the time what that meeting was in relation to. So on the Wednesday, we got a phone call from a guy from Aramark who will be running the centre, a guy called Kevin McGinley who informed us of the direct provision centre coming to the hotel and there's more. So it was obvious that that's what the superintendent okay. wanted us for the following so, day. So that so was the, the uh, first communication we had. We knew nothing of that, Okay, that was 100%, the first communication and none of the local councils would have known at, at that stage. All right, what is your own reaction to the decision to, to put the, the asylum seekers in the hotel, which, uh, as we said, has been closed now for coming up on seven years? Look, to be honest, Mary, I think the, the reality is like it's not about the asylum seekers coming to Lismore, but like it's it is the hotel, it is the centre of the town. Like the, it's probably a ten percent increase in the population of Lismore in one foul swoop, where GP services and and other services are already under pressure. Like even the locals are finding it hard to get GP appointments as, as of this stage. So I suppose I think it's not about I think it's more about the, the location and the consultation transparency has been absolutely appalling. Uh, even to this day, I, I haven't heard any of and the locals are saying this. This isn't just coming from me. The national politicians have have had said absolutely nothing. There have been a few statements made, but they actually haven't spoken on the record to anybody about this, which I think is very wrong as mm. well. Uh, you know, I'm a local guy who tried to inform the people as soon as we knew as local politicians and I and the others told people immediately what was proposed for Lismore. You didn't attend the protest yesterday yourself? Now, the main reason I didn't attend the protest protest yesterday was I understand and the locals have been very brilliant organisation and it was a peaceful protest And but I was just a bit nervous that maybe there would be an attendance of the fair right uh, which I wasn't going to allow myself to be lambasted by. I, like, the locals have been phenomenal. There is no um, racism here. They have genuine concerns about a town that they have lived in and, and look, as I said, there, there are economic reasons as to why the hotel opening would be so beneficial to not alone Lismore, but I'm, I'm from a few miles down the road myself in Tallow. The whole area was hoping that the hotel would open, mm. you know, in the area. Yeah. And to your knowledge, was there any attendance by members of the far right? I don't think so. They had been there mm. the previous day, I suppose. Uh, but I just presumed that they would try and kind of railroad, you know, what was a, a very peaceful protest. 
and like I just would not be associated, nor were the people of Lismore did not want to be yeah. associated with, with, so with that sentiment. Councillor John Pratt there. Then later in the programme, journalist Kitty Holland on the attack she witnessed on a migrant camp in Dublin. Now, on Saturday afternoon in Ashtown in North Dublin, a migrant camp with about 15 tents was attacked by men with dogs, sticks and a baseball bat. Six to eight men from countries like Poland, Croatia, Hungary, Portugal, India and Scotland had been living at the camp since August of last year. The incident was witnessed by the Irish Times social affairs correspondent Kitty Holland, who was at the camp interviewing the men when the attack happened. And Kitty Holland is here in studio with us now. Kitty, thanks for coming in to us. Will you describe what you saw at the camp on Saturday? Sure, yeah. Well, myself and photographer Dara McDonald were there to do a piece on really a kind of housing crisis related piece. Um, we'd heard that there were some people had set up almost like a tented village there by the banks of the River Tolka in Ashtown. So we went out there on Saturday around lunchtime and interviewed the men and they told us how they'd become homeless and... They had it quite well set up with um, tents for storage and tents to sleep in and they had a table with um, cups and milk and uh, they had a couple of armchairs and washing line and they'd been a sort of tarpaulin sheeting fashioned to make a roof over one of the tents. And so it was really a piece about the depths of the housing crisis and what these people have been driven to do and how well organised they were. And then um, then we left and um, we went to get our cars and as we were driving back past the camp which you reach kind of going down oh, kind of climbing over a ditch and getting down into the forest um, I saw some men um, walking striding quite purposely it seemed uh, with dogs and sticks and one of them was carrying a bat and I kind of knew immediately where they were going and the photographer Dara saw it too and he started ringing me as I started ringing him and we parked up and ran back and um uh, I, sp- I suppose they probably, I, I could hear shouting and I could hear crashing and banging and um, sort of, yeah, commotion happening down there. And they probably heard me coming before I got there because I started screaming, sort of, stop, stop, what are you doing? What are you doing? And when we got there, the men were kind of re- kind of retreating, I suppose, from the, from the migrants and um, they were on their way back out. One of them threatened the photographer, said that he'd, he'd break him if he tried to take any photos. The photographer did get some photos of them from behind as they were leaving. Um, and uh, I, I called the guards immediately. Um, the guards arrived quite quickly. They would say they were they about 10 minutes late, arrived about 10 minutes later. And um, I spoke to some of the some of the men. They were quite shocked. Um, they before, were before Kitty. Just to to keep the, the narrative of mm. these attackers going. Before we get to the the, the poor men who were the, the victims of this attack, uh, you said that there were dogs. Yeah. What, did did you, could you identify the types of dogs and how many? There were um, there were about four dogs. There were, there were four dogs. Um, I'm not. A, a brilliant at recognizing breeds, but I could recognize um, a German Shepherd and Alsatian. They weren't poodles. No, no, and um, there was an American pit bull ter- terrier as well. They were what I would have called fighting dogs. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and did you see if the men had a baseball bat? I think you said in your report. Yeah, one and, of them. And, and sticks as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, one of them was wearing a black balaclava. And could you so face covered? Were the yeah. others identifiable? Yeah. Yeah, okay. they were they were all white Irish Dublin accents. Um, I'd say they were in their kind of late thirties, early forties. Mm. And could you make out what they were shouting as they ran down into the camp? 
They were shouting, get out, get out now, you you know, pack up and go, you you can't be here, you get out. Um, and I, I was like asked, well, why are you like, screaming at them? What are you doing? Why are you doing this? And did they talk back to you? Did they did they know they knew you were a journalist? You were there with a photographer. So they, yeah, they I don't know if guessed. they knew I was a journalist. They might have thought I was a concerned okay, citizen yeah, or something. Yeah. And um, They didn't I, threaten you? No. No, no, but the, they, when they saw the camera, that one of them did say, if you take a photo of us, we'll break you. Okay. Um, and, uh, and when you when you asked them or shouted at them, oh, get yeah, out, get out. Oh, yeah, they said that there had been an assault um, in recent days and they kind of linked, they said that these men were involved in it. And Kitty described the aftermath of the attack. Um, they, I mean, not a huge amount of damage, to be honest. I mean, I don't think they were there an awful long time, but they, they, there was one of the tents had been kicked over, one looked kind of off its, you know, had, mm. had was leaning over. The main thing, I suppose, was that um, a young Polish um, man, I'd say he was a child really to me, he was uh, 20, he was just turned 20, he had been hit quite badly on, on one of his arms and he said that, like, I, he, I mean, he was kind of flexing it and looked like he couldn't move it. And I, I said, you know, is it broken? Is it damaged? He said he, he wasn't broken, but he said it was very sore. So when you then went to speak to, to the men in the camp, yeah. um, they had been physically assaulted. Two of them. By had, these raiders. Two of them said they had been, yeah, yeah. And how did they react to, to this kind of lightning strike come, yeah. coming into their, you know, this was their private domain. It may be a temporary camp, but it was home to them. It was home and they said they'd been there for about seven months without any incident. Um, but there had been um, kind of talk on social media in recent days where people had visited the camp and done videos and sort of said, you know, these people aren't Irish. Um, there were comments underneath some of the, um, I saw two of the videos sort of saying we need to run them out. Um, people doing little emojis of fires and saying we need to, you know, this is what we need. Um, get your petrol, lads, that'll sort it out. So did they anticipate something like this happening? So they were worried, yeah. I mean, there was um, one of the guys, a Polish guy, was um, said he really liked being there. It was peaceful and, you know, they did have a quite, I mean, I wouldn't want to live there. It was filthy. Um, there was a lot of rubbish. There was there was no protection on the ground from, you know, to sleep on and that kind of thing. One of them had a mattress, but I mean, it was freezing and filthy. You said you were there to do a story on the housing mm. crisis. Some or maybe all of these men had work. Yeah. The, but they couldn't find homes. Yeah, there was uh, the Portuguese guy said he'd worked in a couple of hotels and he'd lost his job and kind of acknowledged that he played a role in that. He'd been rude to a customer. Um, there was an Indian bloke who said he that he was working um, actually since he became homeless he'd secured work um, working in a tech company serving food from 10 in the morning till 3 in the afternoon um, there was uh, t the Hungarian guy said he was he called himself a sole trader but I think he worked in construction he was the one who built the shed and stuff for himself um, so were yeah these all, were people yeah. here to work they, they're all now moving on they, all, they were yeah, frightened. They were frightened, yeah. I mean, one of the, the Indian guy who had been kind of quite chatty beforehand was absolutely in silence. He was just packing up his tent in silence. And, and ready to go. And ready to go. And the Portuguese guy was really scared. He, he said, said uh, the guardy arrived relatively quickly. They're aware of the camp. They'd checked on the camp from yeah, time to time. Yeah, that's what the men said, that the guards had come and done, well, I suppose, welfare checks. Um, they said Fingal County Council had been in and brought rubbish bags down to them. Yeah. So um, And homeless charities were coming Homeless charities knew they were there. That. Yeah, so they had um, support, I suppose, a support network of sorts kind of keeping an eye on them. Kitty Holland from Morning Ireland with Mary Wilson. 
And in the afternoon, Tom Fleming called the live line with Joe Duffy with his unfortunate health situation. Well, I was struck down with uh, kidney failure okay. um, a year ago. Okay. And um, uh, I've been on dialysis since the 5th of May of 2022. Mm-hmm. And... Um, <coughs> Everything is going well, actually, apart from the fact that when I tried to uh, to go to Ireland uh, back home okay. uh, and get uh, dialysis at home, I was told no chance. Why not? I have no idea. Uh, I asked in Galway, I asked in Mayo, I asked in Dublin, uh, and um, they've just they've, the answer they told me they just cater for their own uh, Irish citizens. Are you an Irish citizen? Well, I thought I was, well, yes. Do you, do you carry an Irish passport? I do indeed, well, yes. Then, well, then you're an Irish citizen. Of course I am, yes. And you emigrated to Manchester like so many in the 60s? That's correct, yes. Okay. Yes. Now, and I've enjoyed a perfect health up till a okay. year ago. And when did, when did you realise, as to use your own phrase... Tom, that you were struck down by uh, kidney kidney uh, disease. I, start, I started getting a pain in my side and okay. eventually went to the doctor and uh, the results of the blood test showed that I had only an 8% kidney function. Wow. And uh, wow. it all started from there, yes. And how often are you on dialysis, Tom? Pardon? How often are you on dialysis? Uh, three days a week, four hours wow. each time. So yes. if you were to come, if you were to come back and live in Ireland, which you want to do, you'd have to you'd have to get some arrangement with the various dialysis units, or uh, the one near where you want to live. Um, but you're told don't even bother coming home. Well, more or less, uh, I was told I wouldn't be able to get dialysis, and that was it. And have you inquired about paying for dialysis? I have, and uh, I I was told I could get dialysis by paying five hundred pound per session, plus £250 for a blood test. And mm. I agreed to that. And then I, I, I questioned the NHS in Manchester, and they said they would be prepared to pay. So when I went back to the private hospital that offered me dialysis in Dublin, mm. uh, they more or less said, sorry, we have no vacancy now. But you got the NHS to agree to pay yes. 500 is a seven fifty per session, including the blood test. No, five hundred per session plus a one off two fifty. And is a blood test every week? No, there I think okay. would be a one off blood test. But if you're doing for the three, period, I'd be there. Okay, but for the three sessions a week, you'd be 500 paying five hundred euros. Yeah, each per, session. Each session, so that's fifteen hundred quid a week. That's correct. Yes. Plus that two fifty, so that's over a hundred grand a year. Yes, if I was to, if I was to have it every week, but uh, I would only be able to have it whilst on holiday. And Joe asked Tom if any other hospital could help. I've tried Galway, I've tried Mayo, and uh, none of them will accommodate me. There are fourteen uh, dialysis units in Ireland. And, yeah, and well, nine. There's, there's some in. Uh, places that I wouldn't, uh, you know, I wasn't bothered about going to. But uh, the west of Ireland, uh, of course, I would love to be able to go back home, yes. 
So have you been home on holidays since you uh, experienced almost total kidney failure? No, no, I haven't, no. Because we've covered it before and we have managed various. There's 14 hospital-based dialysis units and nine HSE contracted satellite units. And invariably, it's not just for Irish people coming home, but for Americans or Spanish people coming here, they've contacted us before, say I'm coming for three weeks in August and I'm going to Wexford or whatever. And uh, when we put that out, we invariably got a dialysis unit which would come in. I remember quite recently we got a dialysis unit and they phoned in almost immediately and say, we will gladly facilitate that that patient uh, free gratis. But that's only for a holiday period of three weeks. You're looking to to live back here. Well, uh, eventually, but not at the moment. I want to uh, just uh, visit it on holiday. And you can't even get a holiday? No. Well, the, the okay. units that I tried, no. Well, you have to. Well, then, do you not have to blame something that happened three years ago today, Brexit? Oh, well, and ten probably yes. Ten years that's ago, ten years <laughs> ago, uh, this weekend, this past weekend, is when David Cameron uh, first proposed a, a referendum, all in or all out. The, I understand all that, Joe, but uh, there's, there's, um, you're not, you're not you're, all non-EU residents are liable for the cost of the dialysis treatment. You're a non-EU yes. resident. It's not the, the only citizens but, ordinarily but the, resident. The, the, in the, I think all commitments were were supposed to be honoured for two years after uh, Brexit, especially yeah, but, in the in the. Yeah, but Brexit has, Brexit happened three years ago. Well, three years ago, yes. All, all, all only citizens, ordinarily resident the EU, I'm reading from a HSE statement here, are entitled to dialysis free of charge under the European health legislation. All non-EU residents are liable for the cost of the dialysis treatment. Wow. That's, a, that's an unintended consequence of, or we were unaware of that, consequence of Brexit, isn't it? It is, but uh, it sounds, other than Dublin... Uh, all other places that I've tried, uh, they wouldn't cater for you whether you had money or not. What they say? Well, they they say they um, just said, "Sorry, we don't we don't have the the facilities to cater for other than Irish residents." It's important to stress, HSE say that because the number of people on dialysis in Ireland is at an all time high, there is a reduced capacity for offering even holiday dialysis. Have you tried Northern Ireland? Where, where would you, where would you propose to stay? You'd be very limited on that. Well, like three I, times I, a I week. want to get dialysis within a forty mile uh, radius of where I would be staying. Yeah, and where do you hope to stay? West of Ireland, Galway, okay, Mayo. So, so there's no point in me saying to you, look up Belfast or Enniskillen because they are NHS, Derry. Um, no, they they would uh, they wouldn't. Uh, I wouldn't be interested in in those areas. No. And Tom spoke about the treatment he's receiving. I go there at half past six in the morning. Okay. And uh, I'll be I'll be hooked up to the machine at around quarter to eight eight o'clock, and then finished at around twelve. And uh, the way I feel after the dialysis. I'm totally washed out for that day. Uh, yeah. it, it does take a lot out of you, know. you know. And mm-hmm. then 
I'm fine again the next day. So, yeah. But still, and then you're back in the next day. And then I'm back in again the next day, yes. And the prospect of, of a kidney transplant? I'm on the list. Okay. Uh, and uh, all my, all uh, health-wise, other than the, the uh, kidney failure, I'm fine. And I'm on the uh, transplant, but uh, my age probably is against me. But who knows? Well why, well, why is your age against you? Why do you, do you think that or you know that? Well, I've more or less been told that. Because you're born, as you tell me, here in 1945, just after the end of the Second World War. Um, and so so that makes you in your 70s. That's so still young. 77, yes. That's still young. Well, in my it's, opinion, yeah, it, it is. is, but it uh, is. <coughs> Some of our great broadcasters still working or were in the paper that, this past weekend and they're in that age group. I'm thinking of Pat Kenny. And he looks yeah. about, he's, he's as young as, he, he looks like something out of Westlife at this stage. He's so young looking. Yeah. Um, no, but I'm saying it is, it is, in your 70s now, it's not, it's not, you're not, you're not queuing up outside Massey's Undertaker to get a booking. Oh, absolutely yeah, not. Right, no. okay. Now, that is not to detract from the, is there any way, is there any, would, at your age, uh, have they raised the option of a family donor or a relative? Now, I know in the UK, unfortunately, they don't do it here. I know in the UK, they do allow strangers to p- put their name down if they wish to join, to, to give a kidney. We had one of the, one person on recently. She was from Dublin and she wanted to give a kidney as a humanitarian gesture. And she couldn't do it here because she wasn't a relative of anybody in distress. But she could do it. She did it in Belfast. Um, is there any? Is there anyone you know, Tom? Or is uh, that, or yes, is, is... my son has offered to give me a kidney. Okay, and he's a perfect match. Okay, uh, but uh, as yet, I am reluctant to accept. Okay. Uh, maybe why, in the future. And why do you say that, Tom? Only, only if you feel, <coughs> well, only if you feel comfortable as, answering the question. He's got a full life in front of him, and yeah. if anything happened to his other kidney, and there's nothing to suggest that the kidney would work. Okay. Uh, I've been, I've been, I've uh, had uh, experience of other people that uh, received kidneys from their uh, uh, yeah. mother, father, brothers, and sisters. And they, they didn't work after five, six hours. Some do, some don't. I ta- and to I, be honest with I, you, I Joe, the majority I t- okay. at, at this moment, I don't think I'd like the, the responsibility of taking a kidney from my, one of my kids in, on, uh, unless I was really desperate, you know. That's Tom on the live line with Joe Duffy. And on today with Claire Byrne, remembering the tragedy in Creasla, County Donegal and the people who helped in the aftermath of the explosion in October. A star-studded concert to thank all those involved in the aftermath of the Creasla tragedy is to be held in County Donegal this evening. The sold-out event will feature such names as Brian McFadden, Brian Kennedy, Moya Brennan, Mickey Joe Hart, Lisa McHugh and many others. Ten people were killed when an explosion ripped through the Apple Green service station in the Donegal village on the afternoon of Friday, the 7th of October last. Well, for more... I'm joined on the line by Chris McNulty, who's a reporter with Donegal Democrat. Chris, good morning to you. Welcome to the programme. 
Very good morning. So explain to me uh, what this is about tonight. I said it's a thank you and it's really to pay tribute to those who helped. Yeah, I suppose it's a couple of things. It's a thank you and I suppose it's a celebration in a way. It's, it's celebration is the, the correct word to use. And, you know, when, when talking about something like the Creasle explosion, it's to celebrate the people and, and I suppose to thank the people, the, the first responders, um, you know, many of whom were just sort of ordinary people going about their daily business on a Friday, many of whom were sort of working in the area and, and, and just reacted in the immediate aftermath. Of course, then the emergency services. It's just, I suppose, a thank you for the people of Creaseland, particularly those bereaved families, that, you know, of the 10 people who, who lost their lives to come together and sort of say a collective thank you and, and pay tribute to everyone who, who responded, you know, in the immediate aftermath and also those who have assisted in the, in, in the weeks and months um, and since the explosion. And it's a sellout event, but it is about, as you said, it's about looking forward, not looking back. Yeah, indeed. I mean, it's a, it's a sold-out event. Like, you know, within 12 hours of, of tickets going on sale on, on December 17th, it, it was sold out. You know, the RLA Leisure Centre in Letterkenny holds 2,500 people, you know. So, I mean, you know, you just sort of think on, on that immediate, um, you know, those couple of hours when, when this was um, initially announced, um, Brian McFadden, um, his, his own father, Brendan, is, is a native of Priestley himself, and um, Joe Gallagher, who, who's the promoter of the event, got together and, and following the conversation that, the, the, the wheels were put in motion for this, and, and you're quite right. It's it's about looking forward, you know. I mean, obviously, you know, there'll be a, a period of reflection this evening on, on what happened um, back on October 7th, but it's really about looking forward, and I suppose this is the next step in, in Creaseland. It's people moving forward and, and sort of, you know, the, this is something that's never going to go away for the people of Creaseland, but I suppose this is, uh, you know, another step in them yeah. dealing with it and, and, and sort of taking those steps forward. And Chris, can you give us a sense of how people are doing there? You know, now the attention, the media attention has died down. People have to try and get back to some kind of reality. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, I suppose, as I said there, like, you know, this is something that's always going to be there. It's always going to be a cloud. It's always going to haunt the people of Chrysler. But, you know, they, they've, they've moved forward, I think, very, very admirably. You know, they, I mean, they've, they've really stood together. And, like, in a sporting sense, um, particularly, they, they, they've had some great causes of, of celebration. Um, you know, I mean, everyone remembers Amber Barrett's goal against Scotland. There was a, a young lad from Chrysler, Caelan McFadden, who won a you know, an All-Ireland cross-country title. And, and the local St. Michael's team, you know, I mean, they, they won an under-13 um, league title. And, you know, you think about, the, you know, that sort of on on the pyramid of sport, it's, it's quite far down. But, you know, I was, I was actually there that day. And, and for the people of Chrysler to have something to celebrate it, you know, you just got a real sense that they just needed that in and, and, and that moment in November to, to just help them to help them to sort of take a step forward. You know, they're, they're very resilient people. They're very together people. And it's something that has really stood to them um, in, the, in the last few weeks is that sense of togetherness that they have. Well, it's grabbing any moment of joy, isn't it? Uh, absolutely, absolutely. And I, I suppose that's what tonight's concert is about as well. You know, I mean, it's, 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 it's about, obviously, them all coming together. But it's, it's, it's really about, a, you know, a celebration of who they are as, as well as, as, as much as sort of, you know, it's based around what, what happened in October. It's... it's I suppose the people of Chrysler, you know, just just coming together and sort of saying, look, this is this is sort of who we are, and you know, we're, we're whatever way we're going to go on, we're going to do it together. Mm. From a practical sense, we remember from reporting at the time that the shop at the petrol station was the only one in in Chrysler. What's the situation now? I know the site is still boarded up, isn't it? Because the investigations are are ongoing. But from a practical point of view, is there a shop and postal service in the village? Yeah, I suppose that was something, again, it, it sort of, you know, the, the, the way the people reacted was born out with that. You know, I mean, I mean that complex was everything in the village. It was their shop, it was their post office, it was their, their, their butcher, it was their, it was everything, you know. And, 
Um, within days of, you know, once the sort of the dust settled, so to speak, the, there was a sort of a makeshift shop that, that opened nearby, and, that, and that's still ongoing. And you're right, the, the, the site of the actual explosion remains boarded up and investigations, you know, continue. And there's, there's sort of talk, you know, that, that, that possibly in time when, when those investigations are, are completed, that possibly, you know, some class of a, a remembrance or, you know, some sort of monument will, will be erected at, at the site of the explosion. And Claire asked Chris about trucking for Chrysler. So trucking for Chrysler, that happens actually this Saturday. So um, one of those guys, uh, you know, I mentioned the first responders, there was a guy from, from St. Johnson, Colin Kilpatrick, who was a, he's a, he's a lorry driver and he, he was making a delivery to the, to the co-op, which is just situated right across the road from, from, from the Apple Green service station. And he was one of the, one of the people who for 24 hours dug through rubble and, and used his own truck to sort of gather debris and, and, and take it away from the site. And himself and a few a few of his um, few of his companions have got together and organised an event called Trucking for Chrysler. So basically, what happens on Saturday, they'll drive in convoy from Ballybuffet to Chrysler, and they come back into the Silver Tassie Hotel um, just outside Letterkenny, and, and again a night of celebration. And there's an auction of all sorts of items. Shane Duffy has donated a, a worn Ireland jersey, for, for for example. So again, these funds are, are just to go to the to the Chrysler Fund and to I suppose go some way and, uh, you know, again, and to, and to help those who were bereaved and, and in other ways affected by the explosion. Chris McNulty, reporter with the Donegal Democrat from Today with Claire Byrne. And in the morning, Waterford man Fergus O'Brien was chatting to Ryan Tuberty about becoming a director on the last season of the mega-hit BBC TV series, Happy Valley. We're, we're keen to say hello to you because, of course, you've been directing the final few episodes of the TV show uh, Du Jour in terms of uh, crime lovers and um, it's called Happy Valley. And you are, well, first of all, congratulations. I hope you enjoyed the Thank experience. You. Uh, tell us about yourself. What part of the country are you from and how did you end up at the helm? Oh, God, that's a long story. How long is <laughs> the show, Ryan? How long <laughs> well, give us the abridged version, anyway. <laughs> Okay, um, I'm from um, a place called Abbeyside in near Dungarvan, County Waterford. Um, and uh, so that's where I'm from, and I like to go back there as much as I can. Still some family there. I moved over to London in the 80s, sadly, you know, part of that massive wave of yeah. ex- exodus that happened then. Um, came to London, and um, I have to, you know, there was, I just sort of clawed my way up from here, really. I, I started... Mm. Uh, in TV, working as a researcher in documentaries. Um, I think I always wanted to do drama, but I had a 20-year sort of um, uh, distraction in documentaries, a very worthwhile one. And sure. then um, about six years ago, I made a real effort to get into drama because I thought, um, I better, if I'm going to do it, I better do it. And it just went, it went very well, and quite quickly I was doing um, some big shows and Met Sally Wainwright doing her uh, another show of her Gentleman Jack, and um, on the basis of that, she offered me um, Happy Valley, which but, is amazing because I'm a lifelong. I mean, as soon as Happy Valley started, I was there, a total fan. So to be making the last three episodes ever is like a dream for me. Amazing. Well, like like a lot of people uh, during lockdown, you you found yourself going back over some great dramas, and um, Happy Valley came on your radar, and you said like, well, let's give this a, a run through. Um, and that would be, prove to be quite fateful for you, wouldn't it? Yeah. Well, I was working with um, Sally, as I say, at the time on Gentleman Jack, which was a very long, drawn-out shoot because of COVID. So we had several um, shutdowns where we 
we, you know, just told her to go home. Um, and, you know, like everyone else, was just hoovering up um, whatever there was to watch on TV and sort of got through everything that was recent and thought I'd revisit, you know, the old gems and Happy Valley was top of that list. So I was watched season one and then I was halfway through season, through season two and it was so I was so gripped I texted Sally and I just said, oh my God, this Happy Valley is just incredible. It still stands up. And she called uh, about, you know, a minute later and said, oh, that's really nice of you to say. Um, do you want to direct the last season? And yeah. I mean, I couldn't believe it. I didn't even know she was writing it, honest to God. I didn't know. So I was speechless and needless to say thrilled and um, gave her a handoff for the opportunity. And just the way it worked out, I was still finishing Gentleman Jack, so I couldn't start um, season three of Happy Valley. But really, I mean... It's the last three episodes yeah. ever, and that's what you want to be doing. And Ryan asked Fergus for a nutshell of the plot of Happy Valley. Look, it, it is one of those programs that if people haven't seen it, they, they they'll know that it's um they're they're in for a treat when they do, but they need to watch it from the beginning. How good are you, Fergus, at giving a ladybird guide to what Happy Valley is about? <clears throat> I don't know. I guess you're going to put me to the test. I'm going to put one. you to the um, test because I know that you're 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 great with fans. In as much as you can, give us if, uh, the, the the blurb. Well, it's a show about um, a very rounded, very powerful personality um, of a woman um, called Catherine, who uh, played by the amazing Sarah Lancashire, and mm. she plays this um, uh, tough. Northern Copper. Her daughter gets involved in with this ne'er-do-well and that goes terribly wrong. He turns out to be a, a bit of a psychopath. She gets pregnant by him um, and uh, then the, her daughter takes her own life. So that sets up this um, this uh, heated relationship, if you like, this sort of very tense, she really wants him to go down for this. Um, he escapes for a long time. He's been in prison. He um, comes back out and again gets under her skin. He's involved in her world because he knows that um, her grandson, the cop Sarah's grandson, is his son. And he's trying to forge, forge a relationship with that son. And she's trying to stop that because she thinks any chance this son has her grandson has of being a normal person would be destroyed by meeting his father in case he turns out being like his father. That's the core that's it, of it, oh, that's, really. That, that's Fergus, you nail it. Fergus O'Brien from the Ryan Tuberty Show. And that's it for Playback Daily, so mind yourself till next time.